I won't tell you how many rejections I received, but it was dozens and dozens and dozens. And, and so for me, it was like, okay, who's the next person, right? I'm just going to continue on, you know, until this, you know, is, is accomplished and not take a step back and think about, oh my God, I've been rejected and I'm being rejected because I'm a bad writer, or this is a bad idea, or, you know, I have this illness, so I'm going to die. Of course, those, those ideas emerge, but I try not to let them stick because when they stick, they stop me ultimately from pushing past the adversity. I'm Dan Shulman, the president and CEO of PayPal and a longtime devotee of Krav Maga. Welcome to my podcast, Never Stand Still, where I explore some of the guiding principles I've learned in martial arts and interview world-class CEOs, creators, and change makers about how those philosophies apply to their lives as they perform at the top of their game. Today's episode is all about the survivor's mindset. In Krav Maga, we also call it the warrior's mindset. Having the firm belief that you are worth fighting for and doing whatever it takes to defend yourself. Learning how to stand up for yourself and developing the grit to survive and thrive by any means necessary is foundational for having an empowered life. So what can you do to find the warrior inside you? Can you find new solutions for the problems in your life? Can you commit to goals despite the adversity you face? And can you demand accountability for the injustices around you? Here's Kelly Campbell on how crucial it is to cultivate one's survival mindset in Krav Maga. Hi, I'm Kelly Campbell. I've trained within the Krav Maga Worldwide System for over 20 years. I'm a fifth degree black belt and the highest ranking female instructor in the U.S. In Krav Maga, we have something called the survival mindset. You must believe you can survive no matter what it takes. Your survival mindset is your first form of self-defense. It's believing you have the right to speak up for yourself and say no. And it's also believing that you have the right to defend yourself. You need to exercise your survival mindset just like a muscle every day to keep it strong. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi literally wrote the book on how to be an anti-racist. And in the process, he added the word anti-racist to our cultural lexicon. And it's one we've sorely needed. Since sitting down for this interview, Dr. Kendi has won a MacArthur Genius Grant for his monumental work. So I wanted to start by defining exactly what it means to be anti-racist. Being anti-racist is not an identity. Uh, It's not a declaration. And it's not just a commitment. It's really a sort of a journey. And it's it's a journey to indeed be a part of this, this fight to reduce and eliminate racial inequity and injustice, whether it's the racial wealth gap, racial health disparities, or, you know, others. And I think that leaders, whether, you know, corporate leaders or political leaders, When it comes to other topics, there's a recognition that you can almost empirically think about and assess 
one's progress towards a specific goal. And I think we can do the same thing with race. I think, as you know, in the past, too often, we people would just say we're committed to something without mm-hmm. creating the mechanisms in which that commitment could be actualized and, and assessed. And, and I think we should be doing that with race. Yeah. So it seems to me like there is this part of what you're saying, or maybe a central thesis to what you're saying, is that words are obviously important and words can be very powerful, but acts, policies, procedures that can be measured are really what can start to address this issue in a serious way. Yes, and I think I think for too long when we thought about racism or even the term racist, we had a perpetrator and intent focus. Mm-hmm. And, and what that means is we were focused on who we believed were intentionally creating or maintaining racial inequity and, and, and those perpetrators received a sort of focus. They were condemned as inherently racist. They were sort of asked to, quote, change. And, and what I'm saying is we should be victim and outcome sort of centered. So in other words, I'm more so focused on not what anyone is doing or intending to do, but ultimately what's the, the what's the results, you know, of, of the policy changes, of the practices. And then for victims, how are they feeling it? How are they, you know, if, if an organization makes, you know, changes to, to try to make, you know, an organization more hospitable, let's say to to its Latinx workers. Okay, what are the Latinx workers thinking about those changes? What are they feeling about them? You know, and what they say, especially if we're thinking about it in a, in a sort of a general sense, matters to me more than what someone is claiming hmm. uh, they're trying to change for them, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it does. Dr. Kendi's book provides a new framework for what it means to interrogate systemic racism and fight back against white supremacy. And for the first time, it puts accountability in the right place. It's a revolutionary book, and it came during a revolutionary time. I remember after the murder of George Floyd, you know, and all the tragic events that preceded that, but after the murder of George Floyd, there was this outpouring of emotion throughout the country. But what really surprised me is inside PayPal, throughout all of PayPal, I had never seen the mix of emotions that came out from his anger and despair and exhaustion and frustration and determination that just, it was overwhelming. This was something that forced us to confront generations of racial injustice that really have been with us for a long, long time. And, and my, my question to you is, why do you think it was this moment in time that caused this explosion in reckoning? And, and what ingredients were necessary for that to happen? Well, well Dan, I'm, I'm happy you asked about the ingredients because I think it's important for us to know that this did not sort of come out of nothing, right? Yeah. And and so I would say that those ingredients were that really prior to 2020, really the previous five or so years, 
There had been a growing number of Americans who were telling posters that racism exists, that police violence uh, is a problem. So there was already sort of a, a growing number of Americans who, before uh, witnessing the, the murder of George Floyd, were recognizing this problem. And simultaneously, those same Americans were beginning to overcome their denial that there was no racial sort of problem or that the problem were certain people uh, as opposed to, let's say, policy. And then I think that combined with what happened to Ahmaud Arbery, which people were already aggrieved about, what people had been witnessing happen to, to, to people, particularly Black people at the hands of, of police for years. I think people were already aggrieved over the racial disparities from COVID. And then I think that all combined the sort of seeds with the just horrific, inhumane act of Derek Chauvin. And then it was taped. And then people largely saw the video together because we were all together on quarantine. Yeah, yeah. I, I think those were all of the seeds that I think led to that really explosion of demonstrations. Yeah, I think the pandemic, to your point, caused a lot of self-reflection. But I, I think I think you're exactly right. I think it was this combination of ingredients. Clearly, things have been going on for as far back as we can imagine. But combined with this video in your face of this horrific act and all of us in this moment of self-reflection, I think without any of those, you may not have seen the kind of reaction that we that we saw. I'm happy you mentioned the self-reflection because I think many of us can understand at a personal level how moments of crisis sometimes lead to moments of personal self-reflection. I don't think we realize or maybe didn't realize, you know, until the pandemic about how moments of societal <laughs> crisis can also lead to personal reflection about society. And, and I think it didn't just happen, obviously, around racial issues. It's happening around climate justice. It's happening around, you know, uh, inequality, economic inequality. It's happening around sort of other issues. But what this says to me, and I, you know, I, I don't think that as individuals and as societies, we should wait till moments of crisis to yeah. self-reflect. Amid the racial reckoning, people wanted resources. And Dr. Kendi's book became required reading all over the U.S. It's not just a guidebook, but it also provides comfort for the self-reflecting soul. But solving a problem like racism involves more than just looking inside yourself and interrogating your own belief systems. It demands conversations that may be awkward, uncomfortable, defensive, or even hostile. But how do we have nuanced and productive discussions on such a highly fraught subject? It is important, I think, for us to be able to have public conversations about racism. But when it comes to, to changing people's minds and, and allowing them to begin to grow, that is more likely to happen privately. 
Mm-hmm. And, and the reason why I just wanted to emphasize public conversations is because I, I do think we should have the ability that if some sort of elected official, you know, says that, you know, Black people are lazy and that's why they're more likely to be impoverished, you know, we should be able to call that, you know, call yeah. a spade a spade. But when it comes to like, you know, my uncle or my aunt or my coworker, I think it's a little bit different. And, and, and that's why, so I often talk about being racist. And, and again, when I say being racist, I'm not saying that racist is an identity or a fixed category. It's, 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 it's a descriptive term that describes when a person says a racist idea, they're being racist. When a person is supporting a policy that's leading to inequity and injustice, they're being racist. If in another moment in their lives, they're doing the opposite, they're expressing the racial groups as equals or supporting a an equitable policy, you know, they're being anti-racist. But I often talk about being anti-racist in a way almost like an addiction. Mm. And when we think about it in that way, we can then begin to understand how, for instance, AA is so effective because it allows, it first allows people who are formerly addicted, let's say to alcohol, to talk about their selves, you know, to express themselves, to express what they did and, and, and how they're sort of still overcoming and, and moving past addiction, just as it allows people who are still in addiction to hear those stories, right? And it's a, it's a safe space and it allows people to look in the mirror and see themselves for themselves so that they can begin to process of, of overcoming the denial that is essential to any addiction. Racism has been ingrained in America for centuries. How do we go about fixing the disparities, discrimination, and biases deeply entrenched in so many of our institutions? How do we move beyond self-reflection and dialogue and take action toward making a difference? There's no way in which we're going to, to create a just an equitable and really safe uh, world for all of us if we are not building coalitions, if we're not collaborating, if we're not giving people the, the, the capacity and the ability and the tools really to change and to be better and to grow. And so, you know, whether it's sort of multiracial collaborating, whether mm-hmm. it's uh, multi-sectoral coalitions, you know, this is what we need in you know, in order to really overcome indeed, it's almost like the Goliath, right? Yeah. Which is systemic racism. We have been arguing from the beginning of this country about what the problem is. And so whenever you're arguing about what the problem is, it's very difficult for you to actually institute solutions, let alone for those solutions to work. Cause so mm-hmm. so I think that's the you know, if, if I could sort of break down the, the racial debate in its simplest terms, it's it's between those who both see the racial wealth gap and largely one group is saying it's the result of, let's say, what's wrong with Black people. And the other group is saying it's the result of past and present sort of systemic racism. Mm-hmm. And, and so we're arguing over the, the, the problem, which then means we're going to argue over the solution. And, and so, but can you imagine if we were to come together and, and not see any racial group 
as superior or inferior if we were to actually follow the data that shows in the case of the racial wealth gap that when you control for income as an example the, the racial groups make similar financial decisions like there's no group that's more financially intelligent or literate than another when you control for income if, and and if we were to essentially come together and and and, and recognize that racial equality and then it would then allow us to really assess, okay, what type of impact did redlining have on the racial wealth gap? Mm -hmm. What type of impact did the Great Recession have on the racial wealth gap? What type of impact is student debt having on the racial, and on and on, which would of course allow us to address, you know, some of these, some of the problems. Yep. So, I mean, it seems so obvious what you're saying, and yet somehow we've got to bridge that divide and have you seen examples that you can point to and say like this is how we need to to act or these are the things we need to do because i feel we need to all be involved in some way and i think people are trying to figure like how do i do that 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 actually will make an impact and i i think hearing from you hearing some examples might be really powerful well i think you're Correct me if I'm wrong, but you're asking two different things in terms of examples. I think first is the building the bridges yeah. so that people can begin to sort of see that the problem are these larger structures that we need to change. And, and I can just go from a personal example. I think one of the things that people have consistently said to me about how to be an anti-racist in terms of how it allowed them to begin to reflect on their own racist ideas was because the way the book was written was me not lecturing to people. <laughs> if anything, I was lecturing to myself <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and condemning myself and allowing people to sort of see this internal argument that, that I was having between the old me and the new me and, and really critiquing sort of my earlier you know, ideas or even some lingering ones. And then in a way, the reader became almost an outsider looking into that. And so it allowed, it gave the person the ability to be vulnerable themselves. So I, I think the way that we can simulate that with our peers is instead of us saying to our peers, well, this is the way in which you're being racist, we can say to our peers, you know, this was a time in which I thought the problem was Black people, you know, as opposed mm -hmm. to these structures. And here is how I was able to recognize that is different. And here has how I was able to sort of change. And and so we're simulating for the other person how to be self-reflective, you know, as we talked about earlier. And, and I think that that's, I think that we can do that. And a great way to go deeper on all of this and continue your personal anti-racist journey is by listening to Dr. Kendi's podcast, Be Anti-Racist, which explores many of the themes from his book, as well as new topics and timely discussions about race and social justice. The way the book was structured is I wanted to really show, particularly as the book went on, the way racism intersects with like gender and, and sexual orientation and ethnicity and, and, and culture and so on. And one topic that I wanted to talk about in the book, but I wasn't able to, was the intersection between racism and ableism. And so with the podcast, the first, with Be Anti-Racist, the first episode I was able to talk about 
with Rebecca Coakley, this, this intersection and what it means to be anti-racist, specifically thinking about people with disabilities or, or what it means to fight against ableism from an anti-racist perspective. And, mm. and so we were able to really complicate and provide nuance to that intersection. But then also, I mean, you know, in this moment, we're debating and discussing the relationship between race and sport. And I was able to talk to Jamel Hill about that. Mm. We're, we're talking about the attack on voting rights, which I was able to talk to Ari sort of Berman about. We're, you know, and, and so I think some of them are extensions from how to be and, and others are really responding to this current moment. The name Ibram X. Kendi is extremely meaningful. And Dr. Kendi has a fascinating story about its origins. Before we wrapped, I had to ask about how he decided to change his name. I was studying for our interview. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I know a lot about you right now. And I read that you changed both your middle and your last names. I think your middle name was Henry. It's now Zolani, if, I, if I'm pronouncing that mm -hmm. uh, right. And that you chose Kendi as your last name. What was the impetus for that? Was it hard to, to do that? I'm just curious, like, uh, what the thought process was there. So I think there was a number of different factors that, that went into it. I think first, I had never been a, a fan of my last name uh -huh. <laughs> when I grew up. <laughs> I grew up during the time of Mr. Rogers, and so people would always, oh, will you be my neighbor, uh, <laughs> you know, to, to me. And uh, and then when they learned my my middle name, I mean, the jokes were even worse. And and so I was always, I always wasn't necessarily a fan of my middle and last name. I also knew the sort of history of my name, specifically through enslavement. Mm -hmm. And there had been a tradition, there's a tradition within African-American circles for some people to change their names to sort of shed that, the sort of the past, you know, of slavery, I should say. And, but I think what ultimately led to the change was, was marrying my wife. And, and so when we started, you know, obviously thinking about marriage and names, she shared with me that she wasn't really keen on sort of adopting my name. <laughs> And, and so we continued to sort of talk about it. And then ultimately we were like, well, what if we just both change our names together and we select the name together? Mm, that's beautiful. Uh, and, and so we ended up selecting the name, you know, Kendi, which means loved one in Meru, which is a Kenyan language. Oh, that's, that is beautiful. So my last question for you, and um, part of this podcast is inspired by a philosophy that I've learned through martial arts. I've done that for a long, long time. And martial arts always starts off as a physical activity. And then if you stick with it for a long time, it, it really turns into more of a philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, that philosophy can really teach you so many different things, how to deal with adversity, um, how to control yourself and not let your environment control you, those kinds of things. But one of the things that I ask everyone uh, on the show, because I think we can all learn from each other, is we all know that we get knocked down in life. I'm, I'm sure that's happened more than several times to you. And the key is always like, how do you get back up? Like, what are the lessons learned in the most difficult challenges 
you faced because you know people might look at you right now and and think you know it's been an easy path but it never is and i'm i'm curious to hear your reflections on that so i think the most difficult challenge i've ever faced was stage 4 cancer and oh, wow. specifically colorectal cancer and for me i think how i've dealt with that adversity and i think most adversities was when the adversity emerged trying to to remain laser focused on how to overcome it and move past it or in the case of cancer survive it and so for me I, when when i was diagnosed it was okay you know what do i have to do uh and and even i did not want to necessarily know the statistics on you know survival <laughs> rates and yeah. all those types of things i just wanted to focus on the process of of getting healthy i remember when i first started thinking about writing a trade press book and you know typically the first step you know after putting together a book proposal is is contacting a literary agent and you know i got sort of i won't tell you how many rejections i received but it was dozens and dozens and dozens and mm. and so for me it was like okay who's the next person right i'm just going to continue on you know until this you know is is accomplished and not take a step back and think about oh my god i been rejected and I'm being rejected because I'm a bad writer or this is a bad idea or you know I have this illness so I'm going to die. Of course those those ideas emerge, but I try not to let them stick because when they stick, they stop me ultimately from from pushing past the adversity. Yeah. I I think um this ability for our mind to control kind of outcomes. I'm not saying that that it does you know, I, I once, you know, told uh, my daughter in a, a speech I was giving in front of her school that she should be an optimist because I th- I believe if you're an optimist, it doesn't mean you're you're unrealistic, but it, it means that you're imagining good things can happen, and when you imagine that, you give yourself this fighting chance because <laughs> so many things in life are are difficult to manage. Um, but I feel like people who have this attitude or this sort of belief that I can at least control my life as best as I can by being an optimist about it, not succumbing to you know, all the thoughts that, that can beset all of us at certain times is, is so important. I feel like that's probably what you are uh, to some extent, a realistic optimist. Yeah, I, I, um, I could see that. I, I do think I am a cross between being realistic and, and optimistic. And, and, and I agree with you that in order to, to do the impossible, you have to think it's possible first. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a great way uh, to end our conversation. Dr. Kendi, thank you so much for being on the show and uh, really appreciate it. And I know everyone who is listening to us today does as well. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Dan, for having me on. Thanks again to Dr. Kendi for such an insightful conversation. He's already given me so much to think about through his work. And it was an honor to have the opportunity to discuss these ideas with him in real time. Today's theme is so relevant. Dr. Kendi is a survivor on a personal level, and his work is at the forefront of a movement rooted in survival. We all have a part to play in combating racism, discrimination, and hate. And often that plan starts within ourselves. 
I highly recommend Dr. Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. For anyone eager to learn more about how they can make an impact in the social justice movement. So what can you do to find the survivor inside you? Can you speak up for yourself or others when something isn't fair? Can you see yourself as a work in progress and find a safe space to process your growth? And can you find the grit to just keep going regardless of the barriers ahead of you? I'm Dan Shulman. Thanks for listening to this edition of Never Stand Still. Kida.